0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar.
2: And I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services.
1: Our guest on the podcast this week is Carl Richards. Carl is a certified financial planner and a financial advisor communication expert. His new venture is called the Society of Advice which he describes as a global gathering of real financial advisors. Carl created the Sketch Guy column in the New York Times, and he's also author of two books, The One-Page Financial Plan, A Simple Way to Be Smart About Your Money, and The Behavior Gap, Simple Ways to Stop Doing Dumb Things with Money. In addition, he hosts the Behavior Gap radio podcast and also co-hosts a podcast with financial planning guru Michael Kitsis called Kitsis and Carl. Carl, welcome to The Long View.
3: Christine and Jeff, it's super good to be back chatting with you again.
1: Well, we're really grateful that you're here today. We have a lot to discuss. We last talked to you a little more than a year ago. That was at the very height of the pandemic. What are your main takeaways when you reflect on the past year for your work as well as for the rest of your life?
3: (laughs) That's such a good question. Um the main takeaway I have really is that old saying that people make plans and God laughs is true. And, you know, a a more somber way of saying that is like uncertainty is reality. It's so fascinating to me to look back on my plans and see how few of them happened and, and how okay that is. Right. So that other things show up and doors close and doors open But what I've really learned is that I need to be okay with that because it's reality. So that and the other lesson that was really hard for me to learn was, and we're, we're still trying to get our heads around this, is just like stay put. It seemed like there was a message of like just maybe you don't need to be rushing around, running all over the world, doing all these things. Like just maybe stay put for a little while. And I don't know if that's a, an enduring lesson, or if that's just periods of our time, we need to be reminded that like, maybe this pace was unsustainable. So those were the lessons I took away.
2: It does appear that the experience of the pandemic prompted some people to consider or make major life changes, especially relocating. You in the past have applauded that sort of willingness to upend the status quo, especially for people who might otherwise be feeling kind of stuck. So, how can people hang on to some of those impulses to shake things up even as the pandemic recedes or, you know, maybe building on your previous answer, should they rethink that even and, and stay put as you suggest?
3: Yeah, I, I don't know. I wish I had the answers to those sorts of questions in terms of like, it feels to me like all I've got is my personal experience and and I don't know where the boundary conditions are for that experience, but I still feel like, um, I got asked this the other day, like, what's next for you? And for me, the moment I sense, at least professionally, that I'm comfortable, and here's the way I gauge this. I've personified, I've got imposter syndromes become a friend, and I've turned imposter syndrome into a person, and the person for me is Mr. Burns, which is Homer Simpson's boss. That's what imposter syndrome looks like. When imposter syndrome shows up in my life, that's who shows up. And so for me, if I go a period of time, and it's like a couple of weeks for me, if I go a couple of weeks without Mr. Burns showing up, it's time to burn the boats, right? Like it's time to shake things up again. So that's the way I think about it is if I ever get really comfortable, if I feel like I'm in a routine, at least professionally, that it's time for a new project, for something different, to make a change. And I don't think that applies to very many people. And one of the things I'm trying to do is give the people who that resonates with, I'm trying to give them permission to like, okay, we'll lean into that a bit. And the people who that doesn't resonate with, that's fine too. So I don't know where the boundary conditions are for these personal observations. I just know my experience has been you know, the pandemic gave me a chance to remember, like, a sense of place, particularly a sense of sort of family and community, a reminder of what was important, that maybe I didn't have to change that. But it also reinforced for me this idea of, like, gosh, do work that matters to you, whatever that definition is. Like, if you're feeling, in fact, I sometimes I refer to it, Jeff, as dancing with dragons, right? Like, this idea of, like, If something kind of bubbles, I have always wanted to do that. And you felt that during the pandemic, like it doesn't mean you have to make some life altering change. You don't have to move to New Zealand. You don't have to quit your job, but at least consider what that voice is saying to you. Like, could you just write it down on a piece of paper, right? Could you just dance with it a bit? And I think that's another important, Christine, to your question earlier, like the lessons of the pandemic to me are like, where is that passion? Where is that sense of I've got a thing that I really want to do and I've been putting it off for a very long time. Well, can I just dance with it a little bit? Can I just gently allow myself to explore it? So that hopefully that's, I don't know if it's helpful, but maybe it's a little insightful into how I think about it.
1: It's very helpful. And we definitely want to spend some time talking about your new project, the Society of Advice. But first, one other thing that has been going on in this environment is that there's a speculator mentality Mm. that has taken hold
2: Mm -hmm.
1: with some of the meme stocks and assets like cryptocurrency. Jason Zweig uh, pointed out that it's another manifestation of people being skeptical of experts. Mm -hmm. They think they know better than people who are telling them to buy index funds. For example, what's your take on, on why this is happening and why right now?
3: Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I think like I'm trying to be really careful about not being dismissive of something that might have some cultural implications that are different than the past times we've seen this. Because our tendency in our industry is to be pretty dismissive And we use, we even have some famous words that we use when we want to be dismissive. And we just say, you know, the last, whoever said this, I can't remember who said it, the last four words of any great investor this time, it's different, right? And and we tend to evoke that saying in our industry when we want to avoid thinking or when we want to be relatively dismissive of something. And guess what? Most of the time that saying has been exactly right. But... That doesn't mean it will always be. So I don't know what to make of this. Part of me wants to be as forceful as I can in just saying this is absolutely nuts and crazy and ridiculous and please, it's cute that you thought that was fun, but go watch a movie instead and put your $50 a month into the index fund, right? Like part of me wants to do that. The other part of me is fascinated that my 12-year-old nephew... So. I was trying to set up my, my daughter, my 16 year old daughter, wanted to start investing. She knows that we use passive, low cost asset allocation funds, like, you know, typically leaning into small value, like the whole story. Cause I've, she's heard me talk about it. So we were trying to set that up and it was gonna take with our financial planner. The answer was, hey, you know, I'll send you a form, fill out the form, send it back. It'll take a couple of days to get approved. Then we'll link it to your daughter's bank account. And then we'll save $50 a month and it will cost this. And, and I was on the phone having that conversation. I was like, really? It's going to take a week to get... And in the time that I was on the phone, my 12-year-old nephew was like, hey, come here to my daughter. Come here. And they opened a Robinhood account in my name and purchased the same ETFs we were going to be using, linked it to my bank account. I mean, my wife helped them, obviously, because they needed some information that they didn't have. But in the time I was on the phone, they had this set up. And I don't know what to make of that. I just know that there's something going on. And maybe here's the one thing I could point out that I've noticed a lot of conversation, because I've been asking my 12-year-old nephew and his friends when they come over, And they all know about the latest DeFi project in the crypto land. They all know about it. I'm like, how do you know about it? They're like, well, we talk about it at school. And I know that's probably not normal for 12-year-olds, but this group of 12-year-olds talk about it. My daughter's friends, she's 16, they come around and they bring up Robinhood. And how do I buy stock? And they ask me, don't you write about this? So there's something going on. And I believe the one piece I'm seeing is like, this sense that the system was broken. And I don't even know what that means, but the sense that the system wasn't working for people. My older kids point to this idea that, like, hey, this system's so broken that even people who win lose because they're unhappy. Like, we look at all the people with all the money, they all seem unhappy. So even the people who win in this system, it doesn't work for. Now, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying it's interesting hearing all these conversations and I don't know what to make of it. And so I'm really careful. Maybe there's something about culture. I mean, Dogecoin, like that's literally a joke. But is there something to do with culture that we're not understanding? I don't know. But I do know mixing entertainment and investing in the past has been a bad idea. And I wouldn't want to bet any of my money on the idea that there's something to uh, something that literally started as a joke. So I, I don't know what to make of it. I just know I don't want to be dismissive and I want to learn from the youngs because they've got something to say.
2: So I wanted to shift gear and talk about a bet you have been making, so to speak, which is the work that you've been doing on the Society of Advice. You've been working on that for the past year. For the benefit of our listeners, how would you summarize the project? Is it mainly a training and teaching effort for financial advisors or is it kind of a community for like-minded advisors, or maybe it's a little bit of both?
3: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, one of the reasons it's got this sort of air of, I don't know, secrecy is not necessarily the right word, is because I don't really know how to talk about it. But what it is, it started out as a training program for financial advisors, and it was called the Real Financial Advisor Program, RFA for short. And that was a couple of years ago. And we took a bunch of people through that program, which was really about, you know, how to communicate more effectively with clients. And took a bunch of people through that program and then people started saying, you know, like, what's next? And the other thing that started happening was people were continually pushing for tactical, like, teach me the exact words to say, tell me the exact pencil to use, And I'm always a little skeptical of tactical hacks and tricks and tips and tricks because they seem to be a place for people to hide. You know, if I don't have the exact same pencil that Stephen King uses to write, then I don't have to be a writer. Um, So I'm always a little bit skeptical and I'm trying to get to like the principles or the concepts. And so we built all this tactical programs and I was like, I'm not sure it's changing anything. So we tore the whole thing up, the old RFA, Real Financial Advisor program, and we We built this thing called the fellowship, which was just like my effort to forcibly insert into the world what I think it means to be a real financial advisor. It was 21 declarations. People went through that, and then they said, well, what do we do after that? Where can we gather? And I had joked years ago, like 15 years ago, that there was a secret society. (laughs) And you'll both understand this, is like when I talk to journalist friends about the work that a real financial advisor does, and I use that word in air quotes, like real, when I talk to journalist friends about it, they look at me like I'm talking about the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, like it's a cute fairy tale. But I've seen the work that real financial advisors do and the difference that they make. And so I, I was always just you know like frustrated by the public perception and the work I was seeing. And by the way, the public perception is well-earned, you know, that our industry is not very well-trusted in general, and that's for good reason. But there's this subset of people who are doing real work. And so I joke, it's like there's this secret society of real financial advisors, and people caught on to that. Like, secret society, real, like, where are these people? And so that, you know, 15 years later, we've tried to sort of create a place for people like that to gather, like people who do real work, people who are making an impact in people's lives. So that's about as good as I am at describing what the society of advice is.
1: So let's talk about what constitutes real financial advice or a real financial advisor in, in your view. You referenced a set of declarations. Can you give us an example of what some of those are?
3: Yeah, so... Um, how about just this idea that generally when the people out there go to meet with a financial advisor or a financial I mean, look, Christine, we start there. I don't even know what to use. What term do we use? Financial advisor or financial planner or wealth manager? Like we don't even know internally what to call ourselves. So let's just say when somebody out there goes to meet with a financial advisor, what they typically expect and they've been trained to expect this by not only our industry, but the financial pornography network and the sort of whole media circus that goes on around our industry. What they expect is somebody to chuck, to throw prescriptions at them, right? Like basically product. And the softer version of that is we think it's the job of an investor and or an advisor to give specific advice about products, and to deliver performance. That's what we think, and that's reinforced by, again, the Financial Pornography Network and our industry. So a real financial advisor, and one of the declarations is, we diagnose before we prescribe. And so many of these things sound self-obvious, but in most instances in our industry, you walk in to meet with a financial advisor, and you're expecting, and often they will, just throw product pitches at you. And sometimes the more sophisticated ones are, you know, detailed asset allocation models that go along with uh, strategic asset allocation and feedback from our New York and London office, right? Like all of those things, but nowhere, and this sounds crazy, and I've had thousands of conversations about this, almost nowhere do you get the experience of somebody actually asking you good questions, trying to uncover not only what you want to do, but why you want to do it. Thoroughly diagnosing before they write any prescriptions. So that's one of the declarations is we diagnose before we prescribe.
2: You talk a lot about the importance of articulating a purpose when embarking on a financial plan. You think Mm -hmm. it's a mistake to move straight to specific financial goals without doing that first. Can you talk about why that's so important and maybe give us a a couple of examples of these sorts of statements of purpose,
3: yeah, so Jeff, one of the opinions I have, and I, I forgot to say at the beginning of this, like I reserve the right to be wrong about everything I'm going to say today, but one of the opinions I have is that we should help clients develop a statement of financial purpose before we even get to goals, but certainly before we get to product. It's a little bit like what goes on you know around this diagnosis and the question you're asking is it's a little bit like we love to argue about whether we should take a plane, a train, or an automobile on a trip. And we'll argue the merits of each mode of transportation and that down to like, you know, 10 basis points or even less, right? Like well, and three tenths of a percent allocations that we'll argue plane, train, or automobile before we've even decided where we're going to go. And deciding where we want to go Really, the the statement of financial purpose to me is like the why, if we point to Simon Sinek's work, the why underneath the decisions we're making. Now, I listen, I know that no client walks in saying, you know, can I cry on your couch? Or could you please help me clarify my purpose? Nobody does that. They come because they've got an acute problem, typically to do with underperforming investment options, right? Like, or a lump sum of money or you know, some acute problem. So I know nobody's asking for a statement of financial purpose, but I don't know how we do our work if we don't understand it. And so to me, the way that happens is just in a conversation, typically early on in a new relationship, I like to think of it as the first meeting, where we just try to uncover why are people making the decisions they're making? What's really important to them? Bill Bacharach's work, on what's important about money to you. You know, George Kinder's done some, I mean, uh, groundbreaking work on this. And even the work of somebody like Dan Sullivan at The Strategic Coach, where he asks a question, you know, Jeff, if we were meeting three years from today, what would need to happen in order for you to feel like this relationship has been a success? Those types of questions help us get at this sort of sense of purpose underneath the decisions we're making. And I'll give you two quick examples. One is my own, like the top of my one-page financial plan, my little paragraph or two sentences that makes up my statement of financial purpose. It simply says, and this has been this way for 15 years now. It says, time with my family, mainly outside, and serving in my community and church. That hasn't changed for 15 years. That's why I'm doing, now because I know that and somebody took the time to help me understand that and I've articulated it on a piece of paper, there's a whole bunch of things I don't do anymore. Like I don't analyze every single pitch I get for investing in some venture back startup around FinTech. Not because I don't think they're great, like that sounds fine, but it doesn't help me with time with my family, mainly outside or serving in my community or my church. And so that's one example. An example of a client of mine, his name was Jerry. And Jerry was of like Tom Brokaw's greatest generation. right? Like, he, he, like he's not going to cry on your couch. And when I asked him, I said, Jerry, why is money important to you? Jerry said, you know, I don't, Carl, I just don't want to be a burden to the kids. I, I never want there to be a time when I'm a burden to the kids. Well, tell me, is there anything else more important? You know, if I got to the point where I wasn't a burden to the kids, I'd love to continue to be able to be actively involved in my community. And, you know, if there was something left, I could leave something to the kids. That, it wasn't going to go any deeper than that. I mean, it wasn't about self-actualization. It wasn't about, but that was what mattered to Jerry. Nobody had ever had that conversation. Jerry was in his 60s when I had that conversation with him. Nobody ever asked him that before. And then the last one, my friend Jeff, who retired as an investment banker, had a big pot of money, had met with five different firms, including the bank that he retired from, which you would recognize the name of. He comes to me after five meetings, five different wealth management firms, and says, Carl, you know what the problem is with your industry? This was just a couple of years ago. You know what the problem is with your industry? I was like, no, what, Jeff? And Jeff says, his name was actually Jeff, says, nobody. I've met with five firms. They're all the best. Nobody has taken the time to connect how they want to invest the money with my own personal goals and how I feel about them. And I, of course, jaw dropped. He was like, no, all they want to do is talk about their asset allocation, you know, their market commentary, their super important strategic folks in London and New York. So that's why I think this statement of financial purpose is so important.
1: So, how would an advisor help the clients work on their statements of financial purpose, especially clients like Jerry, who, you know, hasn't spent a lot of time thinking on this level? What kinds of questions could get the clients' creative juices flowing about the purpose of all the planning that's that's going to take place?
3: Yeah, Christine, that's a good question. And let's just clarify real quickly, this is, I think, a layer beneath goals. And so when I I, I we may want to talk about this, but I think asking people what their goals are is something we need to kind of outlaw in our industry, just especially in like an intake form in the lobby. Like what are your goals? And the reason I I think this is important to understand is because people don't know. (laughs) They don't know. And when you get asked, like if the listener, like if I asked you right now, like what are your goals? The first thing that happens is your neck, the muscles behind your neck start to tense up. You feel like a, A burden on your shoulders. Like, I'm supposed to have these things called goals. Everybody tells me I have to have these things. I don't know what my goals are. Most people don't know. And um, I think one way to help people get to, we can use the word goals after we teach them what they are. And the way to do that, like Jerry, is just develop a set of questions. I've already pointed you to a couple. Bill Bacharach's work on what's important about money to you. Dan Sullivan, the strategic coach, wrote a book called The Dan Sullivan Question, which will outline that question. And of course, George Kinder's work, and you could spend a lifetime exploring that because it's groundbreaking. So all of this work around, and it doesn't have to be, excuse the phrase, but like California woo-woo, right? Like, no, you don't. And I found the more sort of successful people were in their careers, the more value they found out of these conversations, So the way you do this in a new relationship, I think of it as the first 15 minutes of the first meeting. Instead of all that stuff we used to do around rapport building, look at all my designations up on my wall, let me show you you how big our computers are, and we've got research staff in 17 different countries. Instead of all that, what if we just stopped and said, Christine, thanks for coming in today. It shows how committed you are to making good decisions about money. Before we dive in, because I know you had a really pressing matter with how the portfolio is done over at whatever place. Before we dive in, though, I'd just love to understand um, why all this is important to you. And then dive into your question. And I pointed you to a couple. My favorite question was a mix of Simon Sinek's work and Bill Bacharach's work. I just said, instead of what's important about money to you, which is great, and please do that if it works for you, I would just say, Christine, in fact, Christine, let me ask you, Uh Uh-oh. Why is money important to you? Uh,
1: Freedom, mainly, to feel that I have the freedom to pursue what I want to do with my days and
3: years. Okay, so let's just pause. If this were a real client meeting, I would write down freedom. That's all I would write down, and I would be listening. And by the way, freedom and security are two of the most sort of of get-me-out-of-jail-free answers. Most (laughs) people people are just like, freedom, I want out of this uncomfortable conversation. By the way, this conversation can be uncomfortable on purpose because people have never been asked these questions. So don't confuse uncomfortable with, you know, something you shouldn't be doing. So if I say, Christine, tell me a little bit more about that. Like, why is freedom important to you?
1: Freedom's important to me because I would like to be in control of my time and spend my time doing things that bring me joy, whether that's working or doing something other than working for money.
3: Right. So amazing. I mean, I would love to take the next 45 minutes and just talk to you (laughs) and then we'll go to Jeff, but this idea of like, okay, freedom. And then you use a word like control, like how cool is to me, all we're doing is looking for the, I call them the crunchy bits, (laughs) the things that have emotional resonance. Because I could say control, and then you said time to do the things that would bring me joy, whether that's spending time working with my family or anything else I want to do. Well, so if we took another five minutes, we could develop that a little bit. We'd have just a couple of things. If I heard you correctly, Christine, you know, freedom is really important to you. Having the control over your time And then I can say something like, let's pretend like you had control over your time, Christine. What would you do? What would you do?
1: Well, I might work in some fashion. I might continue to do some version of the financial education that I do now. But I may do it in a purely voluntary form where I'm not necessarily committed to being there every day. And I'm not tied to earning an income from it.
3: Yeah. See... uh Amazing. And I would not let you off the hook there. I would, I would continue to say, well, tell me a little bit more about that. That's right. So we would dig a little bit there. And then think of all the words we have now. Because next thing we want to do is talk about goals. So now we've got all these words that Christine said, you know, spend the time I want to, I might, the financial education efforts that I'm involved in, volunteer. So now I could say, tell me more about that, Christine. What if we put a little framework around this goal of volunteering more? What would have to happen in order for you to do that? And then you would say something like, well, we'd have this much saved. And I would say to you, let's put a little framework around it. And when we're done, let's call that a goal. That's so much different than, Christine, what are your goals? Like we've backed them into the idea of we've moved from values... It's what Bill Backer calls it. I like the term purpose a lot too. Values, and now we've taken those values and used them as the foundation to frame up something that we can then teach them is called a goal. right? Jerry would have said, I don't want to be a burden to the kids. And I could say, oh, Jerry, that's, that sounds really important to you. You know, In a minute, I'd like to talk about, so we could breadcrumb, right? In a minute, I'd like to talk about that We'll put a little framework, like what would have to happen for you not to be a burden on the kids? In a minute, we'll talk about that and we'll call it a goal. Is that okay? Okay, cool. What else? And he'd say service in the community. And I'd say, okay. And then I'll give you one last example. Julie, a client of mine, said the same thing that um, Christine said. Julie, why isn't money important to you? She said freedom. Just sort of like, get me out. And now they came in <laughs> when I worked at a big brokerage firm that was known for investments. Right? So they came in with that look on their face. Like, what have you got for me, kid? Like, I want the best performing investment. And I immediately was like, okay, tell me, you know, why is money important? She said, freedom. I said, okay, Julie, got that written down, freedom. Um, that could mean different things to different people. Why would freedom be important to you? She said, well, I just want some flexibility. I'm like, okay, things start to slow down a bit, right? Flexibility. Tell me a little bit more about that. Why would flexibility be important to you? And she s- longer pause and she said, time. I said, okay, well, let's pretend like you have all the time in the world, which we'll define in a minute. And if it's okay, we'll call that a goal in a minute. But if you had all the time in the world, why would that be important to you? Longer pause. She says, Carl, I just want to have a family. And so this is a busy emergency room physician, managing partner at the emergency, largest emergency room in our city. Right? Busy, busy. And if you know emergency room docs, like On it, type A, you know, go, go, go. Longer pause and said, Carl, I just want to have a family and I haven't even had time to think about it. Now, here's my question. When would that have come up on your client intake form? Right, if you just said, Julie, what are your goals? Do you think that would have come up? From the look on her face, in particular from the look on her husband's face, Steve, I don't think they'd been prepared to talk about that in this meeting. But here's my, the follow-up is, how could I have built a financial plan if I didn't have that information? So that to me, I don't remember Jeff who asked the question, but that's how that we diagnose before we prescribe process occurs.
2: We have quite a few listeners who don't work with financial advisors. They don't have a guide, so to speak. And so is the process that you've described something they could do on their own or is it essential that they have some type of guide to help them through it and act almost as a foil in some respects and constructively challenging them to maybe elaborate further on what their purpose is and let alone how those might resolve into actionable goals.
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And listen, I'm a big fan of real financial advisors, but I know two things. Number one, they're really hard to find. And number two, not everybody needs one. And so, given those two circumstances, my hope is that this kind of work will help everybody. Whether you can find a real advisor, whether you work with one or not, I can sort of reinforce the idea that they do exist, (laughs) right? And so take the time to find one. But if you can't, of course you can take yourself through this type of thinking, like, why am I doing this? Go read Simon Sinek's book, start with why, and just apply it to your financial decisions. Now, it's really helpful to have... A third party involved. And that third party could be a friend. It could just be, you could have this conversation with a spouse or partner. Now realize, I like the term foil, right? Like I always think of like, look, we've all got huge, but I have a financial planner because I've got huge blind spots where my actions, and this is, this is really um, important to understand. If you think about a Venn diagram, like if we we're going to draw a Venn diagram right now, But right now, it has no overlap. So really, all it is is two circles on a page with a gap between them. And in one circle on the left side of the paper, just write values. You know, the long-form version could be like, what's really important to me? Values. And then on the other half of the paper, on the other side, with a gap between them, write actions, like what I'm actually doing. And the reason there's a gap is because that's called being human, there's almost always this gap between what we say is important to us. And the process of real financial planning to me is closing that gap. So in other words, it's aligning your use of capital and capital has always got an asterisk next to it. And the asterisk says money, time, energy, and attention. So aligning your use of capital, that's that action circle, aligning your use of capital with what's really important to me. That's that value circle. Now that gap exists for all of us. Like I say time with my family, mainly outside. Well, I happen to track my time on a little program called Rescue Timer. And I can tell you that I often spend way more time doing stupid stuff like Twitter or ESPN, nothing wrong with either one of those if they serve a purpose. And then I go home and say, I don't have time for a trail run with my 21 year old daughter. Well, wait, dad, you spent two hours on ESPN today. How come you don't? Well, that's because there's a gap between what is truly important to me and what I actually do. And the definition of real financial planning to me is closing that gap. Well, who has permission to enter that gap with us? That's the way I'd answer your question, Jeff, is who has permission to enter that gap? Who can go in there and go, hey, you know, my favorite phrase is, you know, you'll probably fire me for what I'm about to, you might fire me for what I'm about to say, but you should definitely fire me if I don't. And I think you can do that same thing as a friend. Like you may never talk to me again when I point out to you that you always say time with your family, mainly outside, is so important to you. But I noticed the other day you told me you spent two hours on ESPN, whatever, I'm just making that Oh, actually, I'm not making that up. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you might never talk to me again for what I'm about to say, but you should never talk to me if I don't point this out. Like, brother, when are you going to close that gap? So yeah, having a third party... That has permission because most of us have a strong disincentive to enter that conversation. Like, what's? Have you ever tried that with your spouse? Like, it doesn't always go so well. So, finding somebody who you can grant permission to enter that space and challenge you based on what you said. Remember, they're your values. That's another one of the declarations: is we keep our values off our clients' plans. It's not about our values. It's like it's theirs. Hey, wait, this is what you told me you wanted, Christine. You told me you wanted control over your time. And yet you're doing this. Like, has something changed? Help me understand, like that kind of a discussion. And yeah, it can happen with somebody other than a financial advisor.
1: You've said that it's really difficult to tell people what they should be looking for if they're seeking a real financial Mm. planner. What are some clues that someone's on the right track with finding that type of financial planner? And also, I want to ask if real financial planning, real financial advice, is the same thing as financial life planning, which is a term Mm. that we're hearing more of lately.
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So some clues first. Are they listening more than they're talking, right? Are you getting a sense that you're being heard? There was this crazy survey done. I can't remember who did it, but I first read about it in Russ Allen Prince's book. He wrote a book called The Private Client Attorney, I think was the name of it. They were high net worth families that valued and were willing to pay for advice. They hired an estate attorney and they paid for an estate plan to be done. And then they didn't do anything with it. That was the population, right? And those of us who've given financial advice for a living... This isn't uncommon. You see people who, do you have your trust? Yeah, everything's done, but nothing's been titled in the name of the trust. So this population, high net worth families, valued and were willing to pay for professional advice, had paid for an estate plan, but then didn't implement it. And the question they asked was, why? Why didn't you implement it? And I can't remember the exact number, but I know it was over 90% of the people said, the plan didn't reflect what I wanted, <laughs> right? And I'm like, how does that happen? Well, the way it happens is attorneys were too busy crafting monuments to themselves instead of listening to the client. And the way it happens in our industry is we're too busy pitching product, too busy talking about how smart we are, too busy talking about how big our firms are, <laughs> how many assets we manage, like as if it mattered. So the first clue you're finding is like, are they asking you good questions? Are they listening? What the client is doing, the decision of the value of somebody who's going to give you advice is really, I mean, they don't know this and they don't articulate it, but the research behind it is all they're doing is trying to decide if you can get me to my desired future state. And then they discount your value based on my uncertainty about you getting me there. So it's desired future state discounted for uncertainty. (laughs) If you have not even taken the time to even ask me about my desired future state, the discount for uncertainty is 100%. So one of the clues should be, are they asking you really good questions? One of my second favorite clues is when you ask them how they're compensated for their advice, they don't run from that question. And again, these aren't foolproof by any stretch because look, the charlatans know this too, but it's at least a start. The other clue is, if you ask them about conflicts of interest, they acknowledge that they exist. There's a strong sense in our industry, like we can get rid of, con- we can't. We can't get rid of conflicts. Whenever there's money exchanged, there's a conflict. So what I want to see from financial advisors and the ones that I love are the ones that say, yeah, here are our potential conflicts. And here's how we manage them. So first of all, are they understanding and listening to you? Second, do you understand how they get compensated? Two questions there. How do you get compensated? And how do I pay you? Those sometimes can be different answers and you want to understand the difference. It's not that that's a red flag. It's just that you want to understand the difference. And then the last bit is, how do you manage conflicts of interest? If you can get a sense of those conversations, and unfortunately, Ron Lieber and I, um, my editor of the New York Times, we tried a couple of times to write a column on how to find like a checklist column. And every time we worked on it, we would find counterindications in the news, right? Like somebody who met all of our checklists who was stealing money from little ladies, you know, as the saying goes. And so I don't think there's an exact checklist, but you're just looking for clues. And to me, the ultimate clue is, are they listening to me, right? Are they asking me really good questions? Do I feel like the plan matches what I want? Right. And then um, to your second question about life planning, I think life planning was 20 years ahead of its, I mean, look, George Kinder and the work that he did around life planning, who I consider him sort of the father of life planning. Amazing work. And so I don't know that getting down to purpose is that much different than life planning. It's just, I didn't ever love, I, I couldn't call myself a financial life planner. So I don't know that it's much different. Many of the people who I consider real financial planners are steeped in this thing that we call life planning, but not all, not all of them.
2: You've often mentioned the idea of clients who have more than enough money to retire, but for whatever reason, keep on working because they're just not sure how to stop. How can people figure out what's their definition of enough and, and how can advisors assist them in that process?
3: Yeah, there's a couple different versions of that and I've really been thinking carefully about this lately because it's come up a bunch for some reason. Um, One is the version where they just, like they can't think of anything else to do. And I think this is a huge problem. And we cause the problem, right? Like this whole idea of retirement is largely faulty. The idea that you're going to work until, and, and I think it was an artifact of like, I'm going to work till I'm 65 and then I'm going to die at 67. Well, that's not hard to understand. But if I'm going to work till I'm 65 and I'm going to die when I'm 85, that's a whole different ballgame. And so I think if that's the situation, we just, I mean, sometimes it's too late, right? Like if I'm 65 and I've got more money than I'll ever need, but I can't figure out anything else to do, you know, I just got to slowly start figuring out something to do. Like, I like to think of it as placing small bets, right? Like, well, I think I like golf. Well, maybe I'll try golfing a little bit more. And we know from the research that that's probably not going to be the solution. The solution is probably going to be something involving community and relationships and something that feels meaningful and I'm giving back in some way. So you may as well start with the research, which is, is there a place I can go volunteer? Could I mentor? I've seen some people doing really cool work that way at, community colleges and universities? Can I go be involved in the you know, the finance program? Doctors, I've seen a bunch of my emergency room or surgeon friends who go back and teach. And they do it because they can no longer be operating for 80 hours a week or whatever, right? So just looking for places you can do it. So that's one version. The other version is maybe the thing you're doing you love. But You're also unable to continue to do it quite at the pace. And maybe you want a little room for other things. Well, how do you do that? I'm thinking of entrepreneur friends because I've got a bunch of entrepreneur friends who have been massively successful but are going at it again. And I'm like, what about your family? What about? So, that group of people, you can just slowly start thinking about like, are there things I can whittle away? Like, I don't ever plan on retiring ever. I just want to do less of the things I don't like and more of the things that I do like. And so I keep a stop doing list. And every 90 days, I try to look, I think this is a Dan Sullivan idea that I got from Dan. I try to look at it every 90 days and get rid of one thing that I want to stop doing. Well, hopefully 10 years from now, that'll have me whittled down to just like, I'm just doing the stuff I really love because that's my sense of contribution. Right? So that's two ways to think about this problem. You know, and then the third one just is simply to realize, like, you know, be patient with yourself. Maybe get a little bit more clear about, like, what's it all for? Maybe the habits that got you to where you are are no longer serving you. I mean, that frugality and that... We all have these stories, right? I have a friend that still collects the soda bottles because she gets 10 cents back when she takes them to a certain grocery store that's all the way across town. And there's more money there than she'll ever be able to spend ever, ever, ever in like four lifetimes and still doing that. Well, is that because I enjoy it? And if you do, awesome. If you don't, can we find a substitute? So there's some ideas on how to do that.
1: that gets repeated a lot is that spending on experiences delivers a higher return on investment in the big picture sense than spending on stuff. The data seem to support that really clearly, but aren't time allocations even harder for many of us? It can be really hard to figure out how to balance work and making money with other activities that give us joy. So do you have thoughts on how people can kind of strike that balance better?
3: Yeah, I I mean, I, I don't know what they're worth, but I've got thoughts on it for sure. And I think, to me, one of the most enlightening and painful experiences I've ever gone through was monitoring how I use my time. With just a simple tool, my favorite one is rescue time. I just installed it on my computer, and I did a little experiment. So I guess my, my first point would be become aware of this problem in the first place what happened to me was i had a friend who said i mean literally said these words carl it's really cute that you think you're so busy and i was like what what are you what are you talking about he's like well let's try a little experiment and so here's what we did we installed rescue time on my computer and i made um predictions i made a bet i said look here's how i spend my time i made claims they were claims like i never check email after 5 and i certainly don't check social media on the weekends and I am not interested in politics at all. So I spend no time on political websites and I don't care about sports. So I never checked ESPN. Like, like I made some claims like that, that I thought matched my behavior. And then I just let the thing run for 30 days. You don't have to do it that long, but that's what I did. Just let it run for 30 days. And then I pulled out that piece of paper of the claims I made and I compared it to reality. And it, it was insanely painful because it was just, I was so wrong. About how I was actually spending my time. And what we tend like you could insert money here easily, right? But I think time, money, energy, and attention, all of these things, what we tend to do is we just we we think we're so busy, we ignore it. And if somebody gives us a tool to actually find out, we hide from that tool. Because it's really painful to find out. So that's step number one would just be like, really? Let's just how are you? If you if you care about this thing called time. What if we just found out how you're actually spending it first? And treat that as like no shame, no blame. It's just at this point, it's just going to be something where we go, interesting. (laughs) That's really interesting. Awareness. I'm convinced this is true with money too. Like I think you can get 80% of the benefit of budgeting by simply becoming aware of all your spending. And I I call it for 30 days, take three seconds, right? Just take three seconds every time you spend. And when you walk out of Jimmy John's, say, I just spent $7.87 in Jimmy John's. Isn't that interesting? No shame, no blame. Same thing with time. Just awareness of how you're actually spending your time will drive behavior change without you beating yourself up or or feeling terrible. I mean, you're going to naturally feel bad when you find out you spent two hours today on ESPN and you didn't have time to go on a bike ride with your daughter. But you, that's not the goal. The goal was just awareness of it. So that's how I would start. It's just with a sense of awareness. Because most of us have no clue. And like my friend said to me, it's really cute that we think we're all so busy.
2: You're a proponent of what you call relaxing out loud, being public about taking breaks from work. Why and how should people do that?
3: Well, Jeff, look, this, I realize there's boundary conditions to this for sure. Some of us may not have the flexibility to do this. But for those of us who do, I'm just begging us to do it out loud. And what I mean by that is that that statement, you guys have really done your homework again this time. Um, But that statement I made about relaxing out loud was I had a friend. His name's Jeremy. He's given me permission to call him out on this, and I'll just use his first name. But Jeremy said to me, I was trying to get a hold of him on a Friday, and I didn't know this. I didn't know that he was taking Fridays off. He replied to me on Monday. He's like, sorry, I've been secretly taking Fridays off for the last year. And I was like, what? Secretly? I said, I think you should do that out loud. Because he, he writes publicly. And I was like, why don't, why don't you share that? And he said, I don't want people to think I'm a slacker. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm sorry, brother, because I'm about to tell everybody because we need more people. And the reason we do is we've got to break this I'm busy culture. Like we have a rule internally here that we don't even use, we try, we're not perfect, but we try not to even use busy language. Like when we reply to somebody, if it's been a couple days, we try not to say, oh, I'm so sorry. Things are so busy around here. We're just trying to get rid of all that language because I'm so frustrated with myself for 15 years walking around and anybody, how are you? Oh, busy. So busy. And then, and then what do we say? Better than the alternative. Like, no, no, actually it's not better than the alternative. And by the way, this has nothing to do with working hard. It's just if you've got the flexibility, I've realized that taking time off, resting, relaxing is a prerequisite for doing good work. It's not a reward for it. And the more of us, and I'm not talking about working less necessarily. And I'm certainly not talking about being less productive I'm 10 times more productive when I take Fridays off. I get way more done than I do when I work Fridays, for example. So that's, I'm just trying to, can we just have a few examples where it's like, it's okay that that guy's taking a nap. I heard some study that a big company, they had nap rooms and nobody would use them because they were like, it might as well be labeled public shame room, (laughs) right? I just wish we could change a little bit of that. That's all.
1: Well, Carl, as always, this has been such an illuminating conversation. We so appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. And I appreciated my free financial therapy session, too. (laughs) So thank you.
3: Oh, Christine, my pleasure. And Jeff, thank you so much. It's always clear. I do a lot of these and um, it's always clear when you're talking to pros and when you're not. So thank you for doing your homework and making this so much fun.
2: Well, thanks again for being with us.
1: Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View from Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz.
2: And at SYouth youth one which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one.
1: George Castody is our engineer for the podcast and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at thelongview@morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
0: This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission.